Hi, and welcome to Conversation with a Chef. I'm Joe Ritty, and I love sharing with you the conversations I get to have with talented and passionate chefs. It's the backstory, if you will, to the food they're putting up. Today's chat is with Jude Mayle, also known as the Outback Chef. Now, I've been thinking a lot about native food recently, but not as much as Jude thinks about native food. She is a passionate advocate for eating the food grown on the land we walk on, and she's been supplying chefs, home cooks, distillers and manufacturers with a vast array of native ingredients since 2005. The dream was always to have her own place to share her passion, and two weeks ago she opened the doors to the wild food farm in Rill on Phillip Island, and the dream became a reality. Hi Jude, how are you? Yeah, good thanks. Good. Now, um, thank you for talking to me today. I've been reading a bit about you and I, I don't really know where to start because it feels like you've got such a rich story to tell. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, did it start in, in Soiling and with the, with, in Germany with doing confectionery or where did it start for you? Because you sound very creative in food and in art. Where did mm-hmm. it all begin for you? I guess really food and art has always been part of my life. So that that has just been there as, as a natural and as a given. Um, you know, I grew up in a family where we were growing, we had fruit trees, you know, we were always growing things and I also grew up with a mother that was an amazing cook. So I guess like so many other chefs around, the, the family influence was was really there and I, I guess I, I just sort of really loved it. So, yeah, as... As I came about, I decided something about confectionery just started to really interest me. I, I'm not sure why. Um, got no major answers there, but it did. And I got to know a few confectioners who had been in the business all their lives, and they started to teach and tell me a few things um, just because I was curious and interested. And then I thought, well, look, I really should get some qualifications and learn a whole lot more about the background, you know, and, and things that go into confectionery, you know, sugar's a big thing, all the different sorts of fats into chocolate and the ingredients, you know, just like you, you do, you know, learn the theory of it. So I went over to Germany uh, to the confectionery college over there and studied there for a little while, then came back. And then I worked with these confectioners that have been in the industry all their lives. So it was for them, it was a really hands-on experience. Mm. And I find that's a really important thing with anything to do with mm. with with food or with any anything that... At that stage, was it more artisanal or was it more industrial? Um, I think it was very much more art, art, artisanal. Um, it became industrial. Once, once you get into a business, um, mm. it became industrial I guess I mean I did three pretty hard years on the factory floor that was very industrial yeah. I think I had a stress factor in my wrist for I don't know how long you know just you're lifting up big heavy batches of, of really hot fudge you know usually and at that stage we were doing what they call fire cooking so it's quite a it, it's where you, you, your pot is literally over a flame all the time whereas now um with a lot of confectionery you know they kind of go into vacuum cooking and microwave cooking where things are really rushed through mm. whereas i guess I, I really kept that artisanal side to it with the fire cooking because that's where flavors really develop even in confectionery you know where everyone knows how sugar cooks and it changes from white to the sort of beautiful caramel flavors and all that goes through into into any sort of confections mm. that you make. So we kept it that way, and we were making, you know, big batches of fudge and 
nougars and rocky roads and all, all manner of things. It was amazing. It was really lovely, actually. Um, and But, you know, a lot of heavy lifting, a lot of just getting to know what your batch looks like when it cooks and when it comes up to, to temperature and oh, it just goes, it goes on and on. But working with people who had that background and experience, you know, whether it was sugar pulling or whether it was, you know, making a batch of nougat or looking at, at a pot that's, that's coming to boil and looking when it's ready. I mean, these guys never used temperatures or anything like that. It was, it was amazing. They just knew the batch, knew the sort of the bubbles and why they bubbled and the whole kind of thing. So mm -hmm. that would, to me was a really unique experience. So while I, I had a, I had sort of gathered my theory and through even through a lot of my own study and, and trial and error, which is a scary thing, trial and error always, but you do learn a lot from it. Um, yeah, just working with them for those three years on the factory floor, that was that was really amazing. And, yeah. and I learned a lot. And they had so many really lovely stories to tell and really rich tales about the background and of the confectionery places that they had worked in. Um, mm. So, so where was that? Was that still over there in Germany? No, that was here in, 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 in Melbourne, Melbourne, yeah. So, you know, sort of places like Cadbury and Darylee and Ballantines and, you know, a yeah. lot of those places are sort of They probably changed. started off quite small and then grew to mm. these enormous companies, yeah. Yeah, yeah I well. think, you know, Roundtree, Hoagley, you know, there's all these kind of, you know, different different things in the different stories and then I mean that's going back a lot of years now and then as I guess really factories as came about for confectionery new rules and regulations and a lot of things they could do then that had to change to right. to fit in with all the health department and all the requirements you know local council requirements and things I think confectionery has changed quite a bit but learning it from the basics yeah. is good fun yeah, yeah. amazing and were you able to um, then go off and like create your own things, like in a Willy Wonka kind of way, or was it not quite like not quite like that? Probably more of a wonky kind of way, but uh, yeah, I I did, and I, I mean for me, experimenting is always a thing. I've probably hardly ever follow recipes mm. really. That just about goes through all the way. So you're kind of thinking, hmm, okay, I could do this, make marshmallow this may, maybe we should try this, or add this flavour in, or work different ways or if it, same with nougars and all those other kind of things yeah. you, you do tend to start experimenting and then that flows over obviously onto food because I've, I've always cooked and with with my mother cooking and you know she used to do a lot of things I mean she you know she was I think then it was called Emily McPherson then went over to William Angus you know she was doing a lot of stuff in there um, and then she did um, she was one of Elizabeth Chung's first students in Chinese cooking so oh. even from an early age you know we were having yeah. all this amazing Chinese food so it was all about experimenting and when we moved from the country down to to Melbourne and, and dad was a wholesale fruit merchant then in the in the Vic market um, he, he used to bring home all sorts of really amazing things that you know people just weren't seeing on their plates so you know I remember when mum first sort of showed us seaweed and I'm like seaweed really but now it's kind How of forward thinking because I you know I think it was I just spoke to um, an older, much older Greek um, beekeeper. He's 87 in wow. Windsor and he's got all these hives. But he yeah. said when he first came over and he was in his 30s and it was the 60s here, people didn't really, uh, honey wasn't a really big thing. Like people weren't really into honey or something. And so really? I was thinking, yeah, so that was I his impression because he was wanting to supply honey. He'd, he'd supplied honey all over yeah. Greece. And um, it's sort of interesting how well it seems quite conservative Melbourne was um 
back in the day and then you know if your mum's bringing out seaweed and so on that would have been quite a novelty yeah, yeah well, I think I learned I think I learned um to make stir fry before I just about learned anything else you know yeah yeah I, wow but yeah I, I mean I guess really going back Australian food was pretty conservative you know the meat and three veg was mm. was really the rave then um and now I mean we have such an amazing multicultural lot of people living here and also amongst our chefs mm. that our, our food I kind of say in Melbourne but really all over Australia is is incredible we, we yeah. have this amazing um mixture of food and fusions and all sorts of other things coming into play and that's where I th- like to think with Australian native food it's now shaping all that it's bringing it all together you know whether it's an Asian influence or a Greek influence or an, a Middle Eastern influence native food is creeping into all those things and yeah. I work with chefs and, and supply chefs who are part of you know we have a Greek you know based restaurant or Italian based restaurant or Asian or Thai and they're bringing native food into it. So native food is really, I think, starting at starting or has already shaped really importantly what what our food is all about. Mm. And it must. And I think um, whatever side of the controversy um, about Bruce Pascoe that we stand on, I think that he's right and that there are so many um, underutilised plants here that grow oh. naturally without the need for as much irrigation or whatever that we should be... Um, tapping into and I spoke to a chef at um, who's got a resi- residence at um, the Windsor Hotel yep. so um, Rob and um, he's got lacquer and he um, is using padamelon from obviously it's on a plant but padamelon from um, Flinders Island because they, they're overrun with them there and mm. we have all these natural resources mm. so were, were you quite a, um, a forerunner in introducing people to those was Outback Chef um, one of the first no, to... no, it wasn't. There's, there's, there's been other people that have come before me that have, have paved the way, um, and they've really, you know, a lot. Of, there's a lot of amazing people that have been in the native food industry for a long time, but I think really when I mean Outback Chef started in two thousand and five, mm. um, and before then, um, I mean I worked for a while in in an art gallery, um, Indigenous art, which is I, I've always really liked that and. I guess really that the stories of Indigenous art and all the things that 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 really showed me a lot about what's going on and you're going oh wow there's all this food out here we know Mm. nothing about it so when I went over with Outback Chef I was sort of thinking okay let's let's start selling all some you know I was getting into the herbs and spices because that was really the first entry into it herbs and spices for me anyway and how did you gain entry because did you have to go and talk to the community and were they open to it or what happened How, yeah or? um i think look i already knew through the art world quite a lot of people out in community um but for me it was really at that stage i was living up in sunshine coast in queensland and it was really oh it's native food i really want to know more about it you know and then I, I, I started talking just to a couple of people in the industry um some indigenous some non-indigenous and then just it, it took on from there. So then I'd get, you know, I had a few herbs and spices and bits and pieces. You know, you start door knocking. This is it. You know, I think, okay, we're going to give this a go. Um, and of course, no one wanted to know about it. Yeah. Firstly, no one was, 
I don't think that interested. They had all these sort of preconceived ideas about, oh, native food, nah, nah, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't belong anywhere. Um, even though early pioneers did have a bit of it, but then English sort of European food started to come in. So whatever the early pioneers had just kind of mm. got, got pushed away. Um, but those that are interested sort of went, oh, look, I really don't know what to do with it. And that was the biggest thing, I think, for the, for the little little light bulbs that flashed on in some people's heads that they were, you know, they'd smell lemon myrtle. Oh, that's really nice. You know, and that was probably one of the most familiar ones. But you start introducing some of the peppers and the wallow seed and all that. Well, I'm not sure what to do with it. So then I thought, okay, there's got to be a way to sell this stuff. I, I, you know, I really believed in it at that stage. And I also really believed that I think it's it was really important for this country. I mean, that's going very kind of out there. But I really think that our native food is important for this mm. country mm. it's what grows naturally it's it's what and I guess too it goes down to your own philosophies and mine is that if you eat what the land that you walk on produces you're going to be a lot happier mm. um, and you're going to relate to that land a lot a lot more you know I mean I've got nothing against the imports I eat plenty of imported herbs and spices and incorporate them but you know, we, we've got to have that component of, of what this land produces naturally because that's all the minerals and the elements and all the things that we're going to absorb. So, you know, I could waffle on for that quite a lot. Mm. But saying that, I think that that was, that was important. So when I was thinking, how am I going to sell this? I thought, okay, this light bulb moment, curries. Everyone knows what to do with a curry. I'll make a curry. So that's where I started um, doing things. Um, I, I did Outback Bush curry, Australian red curry and Australian yellow curry. And then I put them in, you know, commercial wraps and started selling them. They're a little slow to start with, but I'm still selling them and they're really taken off. And now I, you know, a lot of the chefs will buy, you know, kilo bags from me and all that kind of thing. So with that, that was really a combination of imported herbs and spices, ones that we know and love that will go in any curry, um, as well as just introducing Australian natives into those. And they work really well. Of course they do. They go with so many other things. So we've got you know, lemon myrtle, anise myrtle, some of the peppers, and so it goes on. So from there, I went on to sort of teas and created a range of teas. And again, just looking at what is already there, what people know, and then just kind of creating my flavours. So what I'm using with, while I I sell native food, um, I kind of think, you know, work it in with other things. And I Mm. guess really that's the way I've evolved Outback Chef is sort of saying, okay, you know, you can make a batch of muffins and you can put some lemon myrtle or some wattle seed in. Um, You know, you can mix some lemon myrtle with um, dried apricots and coconut, a really nice little combo and stick it in your muffins. So, you know, I'm not saying just all native, but look at what's around Mm. and start moving and incorporating it. And by that, what I'm seeing now is people... That's kind of a good educational thing where, you know, you go into a coffee shop or something like that and they, they might see, but, oh, that's got lemon myrtle in the other. Oh, yeah, okay, let's give that a go. They feel a lot more confident yeah. because it's a, it, they're on a familiar territory. Mm. So that that part, I think, really works well. And also into meals, you know, if you want to bring warrigal greens in um, to it, and I've got oh, so much of that growing on wild food farm at the moment. It's it's almost scary. I think it seems to be popping up everywhere. I mean, it's such a great ground ground mm. cover, but you can use that instead of spinach. Um, you know, you can blanch it if you want to just sort of take out some of those sort of bitter bitter tones in it, or you can mix it with spinach as well. You know, mm. it doesn't have to be. You know, so if you want to make, you know, the fet the feta filo 
spinach things, you can put a few warrigal greens in, you can put a bit of, you know, pepperberry in or something like yeah. that or wattle seed. You can start that kind of incorporation, you know, using something that comes from, you know, European background. Yeah. And when did you make the decision to about wild food farm? Wild farm? Wild food wild farm? Wild food farm <laughs> down at Real, yes. Well, um, I've, for pretty much all our back chef's life, we've been operating out of... Um, a warehouse and website um, and then I go out I've given talks you know and you go out to various restaurants and everything but I've always felt I just wanted to go that step further started out as a bit of a fantasy and I was told it's only a fantasy mm. um, just to sort of have this amazing place you know where everything's growing and the whole bit bit um, but then the fantasy became a dream and now it's a reality yeah. so I had an opportunity there, one of one of my clients actually going way back, used to buy some things from me and he he, st- he and his father um, planted, put a lot of plantings in on this property. They started off with just a bare, bare bones. Paddock. Where is it? At Real on Phillip Island. Okay, yeah. Yeah, um, and they, they ran it as a, a trout and bush tucker farm. So really the fish were the main thing where people could come and fish and trout in the dams and everything like that. Then, um, sort of moving along, um, they they sold it, and then the next lot came in, and then it, it, the bottom line was it was empty for quite some time, and I sort of thought mm, this is interesting, and I went down, I was chatting to him one day, and he said it'd be good for you, and I said yeah it would be, and I was looking around at all the work that needed mm. doing around the property and. And, you know, the, the cafe at that stage that, that they'd opened was just an absolute shell and needed a whole lot of attention. But the property did too. And But it just, it, it was one of those things that just kept needling me. And I'm thinking, this is really nice. I really like it. Oh, how am I going to do this? You know? <laughs> so, you know, we just I just sort of talked about it. I, you know, we did a lot of facts and figures. I worked with a, a business consultant on that. And we just did a lot of facts and figures and... Then I just said to him one day, okay, I'm going to do it. He said, you're going to jump in the deep end? I said, yep. I said, I've decided I can swim really well in the deep end, so <laughs> I'll work it. Let's see what happens. So that's how it's come about. So we actually opened the cafe. It was only a couple of weeks ago now. Yeah. Still very new and still a lot of work to do, but oh, I'm so happy with it. It's, yeah. it's looking great. Wow. Um, and it's, it's a step-by-step. So we'll have the cafe, produce store. Want to do a lot more in the produce store in making jams, you know, all the different sorts of preserves, oils probably, vinegars, all those lovely things that we can do just to really showcase how amazing native food is mm. and, and what can be done with it. Mm. So, you know, for people who who want to cook, they can do, do those things. But, you know, there's plenty of people that just like to buy something off the shelf or, you know, we can provide the ultimate amazing Australian gift, you know, with, yeah. with some of the foods, the teas, the oils, whatever. So when you originally started, were you getting um, more of those ingredients from further north? A lot did come up from, from north. So northern New South Wales is, is a pretty good place for, for native food. Is it different? Are there different things there to here, though? Will you, yeah. So yeah. would you still be um, accessing From all them? over, yeah, yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, because I think our back chef now has developed to the stage where we are supplying, you know, a lot of... A lot of chefs in restaurants, cafes, a lot of distillers, a lot of manufacturers. So we need a fair bit of stock. And I mean, that's that's the one thing too, was space was always an issue. Freezer space, storage space, chiller space. 
I just never had it. Whereas now on on the property, we have got heaps of space. Okay. I've got to put a lot of things in there still. Um, but it, it just means that, yeah, we can really start looking pretty seriously about getting getting all this together and and being able to supply people and, and be able to continue the supply because quite often, you know, you might be able to get down maybe half a tonne of, of fruit or something in season and then all of a sudden you have, a, a you know, someone who's doing manufacturing and they might take just about half or even more than half of that. Yeah. And then the restaurants and all the others are taking it. So you end up running out. I just want to try and get the stage where... I don't run out so much until the next season so we can start working on those things mm. um, I most of the chefs that I talk with they're really keen now a lot of them love foraging they're right into yeah. it it's that's a that's a brilliant thing and it's yeah. getting other people really interested and also um, I guess really too with, with, with the chefs they really love seasonal produce so they're accepting of that, although they, they like to think, okay, if they want blood limes or desert limes, that they're doing a menu and say it's going really well on their menu, they don't want to take it off. So they want, and I understand that, so they want to have, you know, supply longer than seasonal. Mm. But uh, by the same token too, when it's picked off the trees, it's there, you know, yeah. and it's there until next season. You know, it's not like strawberries or anything like that where, you know, you can get them from... If, if they're not available down here, you can get them up north or whatever yeah. because of the different methods of growing. Mm. So na- a lot, most native food is still very much wild harvested and seasonal. So That's it's amazing. the beauty of it. It's the frustration of it at times too. Because I can smell all the um, spices and the herbs. But yes, I sort of had I'd not forgotten because but I've, cause I've been in and spoken to a few chefs who I think um, use your products. And mm-hmm. so at Charcoal Lane, I think oh, he yeah. took me around and he showed yeah, me different Greg. things, Greg. Yeah. And, um, and other people have mentioned you as well. But I sort of forgot the whole... There's a really huge job you do. What I mean, how many different products or ingredients do you oh, God, deal with? <laughs> it, I actually don't... I, do you know, I've never counted them, which is a bit... It's a bit scary because I'm just sort of so used to them coming and going. Um... And, and how does it work? Do the chefs come to you and say, I need this? Or do you say, this is what's in season and available? Do you want to order? Or how does, is it a, so they buy, you get in what you need? Or do they, or how does it work? Look, it's, it's a bit of both. I mean, sometimes I'll get a chef, say, for example, if, if a chef rings me up, uh, he might work for, for a catering company. And he, and he said, look, I have to do a special thing for Australia Day or for, for something where they want a uniquely Australian um, Australian food on the menu and he hasn't worked with a lot so I'll usually spend a bit of time talking to him finding out what what's on his menu and work out the best way that he can incorporate native food into into that menu so you've got that style where he's on a learning path he or Mm. she is on a learning path and building up you've got other chefs that really know native food already say we're Mm. just talking today now um, that they already know native food and they'll ring up and say, oh, have you got this, this, this in? I might say, no, look, I haven't got that in. And, you know, look, it's not during probably their harvesting, maybe September, October, you know, and we're into March, February, March. I said, look, I haven't got in. I've only got a little bit in, whatever. I said, what are you doing? So then I'll sometimes talk to them again about their menu. Well, how about you try this or how about that? I've got plenty of that in. Yeah. We can help you with that. So often it's a, it's a talking thing, you know, with them saying, well, yeah, you know, we can we could supply this that would work there you know uh, others will ring up what else have you got what have you got that's different and i say yeah look i'll 
you know, I can get that some into you when I deliver your next order. I mean, today I was I was delivering into the city and the chef there said, okay, this is great. He said, you know, have you got any limes coming in? I said, yeah, I've got them in the freezer now. That'd be fine. He said, yeah, I think I'm going to change menu over. So if I know you've got them, that's good. So, mm. you know, the, there has to be discussion. They, they can't, it's better for them to talk to me and I always encourage that so that then I know what they're after. Mm. And I think the other thing, because I've been doing my own deliveries, which is good and bad because it takes a lot of time, yeah. but I've really got to know my regular chefs really well. I go into the back of their kitchens, I see what they're doing, they show me what they're doing. So if I'm, say I might get someone right up in the middle of Queensland or somewhere and they've got all this stuff, I'm thinking, oh, I know who might be interested in that. I'll give them a call and see if they if they want it. And I'll ring them up and, oh, yeah, okay. That. And then you sort of start to create those links and you might be starting to create a whole new, mm. you know, flavour. For example, curry myrtle is one um, that I've been... I'll give you a smell of that later. It's <laughs> some magic. Um this old guy up in the, right in the middle of Queensland rang me up and said, oh, I've got a heap of it up here. I said, yeah, okay, send some down. I, I knew what it was because I'd actually smelled it and really liked it. And I thought, oh, yeah, I know who'd be interested in that. And I told a few chefs and they were. So we kind of worked together a little bit. Mm. And by me, you know, liaising like that means I can help them. I can, I can tell them a little bit about, more about what's different and what they can do mm. and you know work work it through that way so that's kind and of otherwise it. those people that you're um the supply or your your suppliers who are they selling it to or are they are you really their only means of no there's there's a i guess there's a few of us out okay. there now there yeah. used to be a lot less now there's yeah. a lot more um i've got really good relationships with all my growers so i deal with um, indigenous and non-indigenous growers, wild harvesters, also um, a lot of indigenous communities because mm. there's some fantastic things happening on community now, you know, with say with Kakadu Plum where they're going out to homelands and, you know, getting the plums and all sorts of different things and often on community you go up to Arnhem Land or that, there's just like a wealth of native food, amazing, beautiful flavours. Not all at this stage possible to bring it down and look at it on a commercial level. Okay. But it's really interesting what's out there because we, we just haven't even... I don't believe we've even scratched the surface. No, that's right. You know, there's there's we've got the regular staples and those regular staples that we've got are increasing, you know, mm. from lemon myrtle, anise myrtle, the native peppers, then you go into the limes, quandongs, Davidson plums. You know, we're, we're, you know what I'll say, we're increasing all that all the time. So it's becoming a lot more every day mm. where it just wasn't 10 years ago. Well, it's sort of interesting because I um, had a chat to one of the distillers at um, Four Pillars Gin and to make oh, yeah. the pink gin for um, Arbery afloat, they experimented with all kinds of things and they were just turned brown, but it was Davidson Plum that held its colour. And I thought, that, how fascinating. <laughs> Davidson Plums make a, a beautiful gin, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I know Four Pillars quite well yeah. and they... They're doing some some beautiful things. Mm. Oh, it, it's amazing the experimenting and the excitement and and all the creative input that's going in using natives now. Yeah. It's, it's so good. And you've written books as well. Yeah, I I wrote one book and and the reason for that book again was as an educational um, thing. It was it was really to the book. In the, oh, actually, I've got a copy out there. I'll show you it. it the book was really just to show people more home cooks. Yeah. That. You know, it can it can be done. If you make a lasagna, you could use a mixture of beef and kangaroo, or you could use all kangaroo if you wanted to. But but kangaroo's got its own specific flavour, and it might be too much. But you could 
do that you might put a bit of bush tomato in you might put a bit of native pepper in you know and so it goes on so the idea was really just to create mm. create recipes that home cooks can use and often you know you get the calls oh, i'm having a dinner party and i want to use some natives you know so that that sort of fitted that market and then i put a little bit in about what um you know a little bit about the native food and then i also put a bit about the indigenous side of things um some friends of mine that were artists allowed me to use their paintings and just the stories behind that just to show the importance that the artwork tells because the artwork is a story about survival about hunting gathering all sorts of things so mm. paintings uh, indigenous artists is, uh, <laughs> that's the, that's the that's the footy sequence i get <laughs> Every now, if there's something new happening in the football, <laughs> and so you hear that, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> I do like football. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll get actually while we're talking, I'll yeah. get the book and you can, Great. you can have a look through. Yeah, it's actually sadly out of print at the moment, so I've only got limited copies. But um, if I can get them to do some more copies, but essentially. I mean, these are some of the paintings. Oh, beautiful. And they really do tell a story, you know, fire, lightning, all the important things there. I then, saw a documentary once where um, there were all these artists, Indigenous artists, and they'd never been off the ground. But when they took them up in a plane, it turned out that what they'd been just naturally painting and drawing was like an aerial view of where they lived, just all the geographical features. It was just incredible to me. I just thought, gosh, this... Yeah, it's just, so much to learn. <laughs> we really do. Um, you know, just about the things that went on in this country before European mm. settlement. And, yeah, uh, the Kimberley artists are well known for, for doing these massive lots of, of land. And a lot of the, the, the centre and western desert art is, is looking down from mm. above. And I think that... Um, because the people there know their I believe is because the people there know their country so well mm. so say for example um, and a lot of young children will draw aerial views so say if, if you had to draw a picture of your house you might sort of draw an aerial view and you knew you'd know where the bedrooms are and where the closets are and where the kitchen is and you know where you put your shoes and all that sort of thing you could do you because you know that very intimately and also you know how you walk to the shop so you you know, a lot of the maps like that are aerial views because you're looking down on it. Mm. And I, I kind of relate it to the same okay. type of thing. Yeah. You know, a lot of people think, oh, it's the spirits and all that. Well, maybe it is. I don't know. But I, I think that is because, I mean, while the land mass is, is incredible, it, you know, it's huge, the people there that lived on that land, that's what, that's what they know. They know that land so well. And they know the rocky ground, the high ground, the low ground where there's spinifex growing, where there's water holes, and they're able to just put that down incredibly mm. well. It mm. was, I think that came home to me really well when I went to a trip out into the desert um, and we were dry, We drove from Alice Springs to Uluru and then came back and then drove from Uluru out to Hermansburg. Yes, a bit, you know, different directions. But I kept looking, thinking, oh, my God, you know, and and I'd, I'd see land masses and things like that. It, it it was just so. It really was magic, actually. But looking at at you know, thinking back to the artwork and the paintings and what had happened, it it was all there. Yeah, yeah. Incredible, really. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So you're gonna be moving out of here, and and you'll be permanently based 
Philip yeah, Island. Yeah, so Philip Island will be the home. So we'll leave yeah. this this little warehouse here and um, really set up shop down there. And well, it's already set up. There's yeah. a whole lot more to do though. But yeah. yeah, having it all under the one in the one area is going to make life a lot easier. Um, and we can. You know, we're going to work with a lot of schools. We've been talking about that, um, and that will be part of their program that they can come and see food growing. Mm. Um, yeah, so culinary schools, yeah. all that kind of thing. You know, mm. hopefully, people can really get a good understanding and education from it. Um, you know, I've got some um, local Indigenous people there who will be, you know, really giving a good input into it all. Um, mm. You know, I'm working as guides around there and some great stories from, yeah. from that area. So, yeah, pretty exciting. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I think that's so much. And, um, and thank you for your generosity in sharing so much. No, that's a pleasure. Pleasure. <laughs> You've been listening to Conversation with a Chef. I'm Jo Ritty, and thank you so much for joining me today. If you'd like to read the full transcript of the conversation, you can go to www.conversationwithachef.com or follow me on Instagram so you'll always be up to date with the latest conversation.